What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here. Yes, wearing the same uh, same jumper from last week um, here in New York City. This is live from Nerdville. And today, my special guest, I am so honored to have him on the show. Multiple Grammy winner. You know him. You love him. He has played on hundreds of records. An icon of the guitar, Mr. 335. Larry Carlton, thank you very much for doing this. I'm so honored you're here. Thanks, Joe. It's been a little while since we've seen each other, but thanks for the invite. You know, the, the, the last time we hung out, we had this, it was a crazy gig in Paris. Paris. And, um, and we, were, we were hanging out, and you were there with John Jorgensen and Robin Ford. And um, it started with you sitting in, and then we invited Robin, then we invited John, and, oh. and, and, and the people in Paris were, were absolutely, they're, they're like, what's going on? It's like, <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Ford, ladies and gentlemen, Larry Carlton, like, who, you know. But it was, uh, it, it was uh, something I'll always remember, and it was just, it was such an honor to have you up there. And, and you're killing it, man. You're killing it. You're playing great, and as always, as always. Well, thank you, thank you. That was an interesting time there in Paris and in France for that tour. Uh, John and Robin and myself and Christopher Cross, a right. couple of other people, we have been booked for like a six-week tour with 35 gigs or something like that. Well, right. half, of the, half of the gigs got canceled by the promoter. Right. So we ended up with all this time off just hanging out in Paris. It was cool. And you happened to come in on one of the nights that we were off. It was great. Yeah, it was, it was it, I remember you guys saying like, yeah, we're off for like the next two weeks, you know? And, it's, yeah. and you know, that's the one thing about like, like you can't play every day when you're touring. You need a day off, but sometimes those days off are just so boring. You're just like, con you can, you get to the end of the internet, you know? Do you, do you, um, do you like touring? You know, because I know you, I mean, everybody knows Larry Carlton as being one of the most accomplished session guitarists of all times. But, you know, do you do you like the do you like the backpack and the and the and the feel of the road? Um, I do uh, about maybe 10 or 12 years ago, something mm -hmm. like that. I cut down on the touring to a more comfortable for me lifestyle. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I moved to uh, out here outside of Nashville. Uh, 1996. Mm -hmm. So yeah, about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I cut back and I never toured like you, hundreds of dates a year. For me, a big, big year was 140 dates. And I cut that down to about 80. Right. Uh, just by choice. And I'm enjoying my lifestyle with the grandkids and uh, that whole deal. And you were, uh, you know, you're one of the first people that I knew that that moved to Nashville from Los Angeles. And, um, you know, now everybody is in Nashville, you know, I have a place in, you know, and, um, and what was it about Nashville that, that, um, that, that attracted you to, you know, move from LA to, you know, to the 615 in the first place? Yeah. Um, I knew in my thirties mm -hmm. that someday I wanted to live a more rural lifestyle. Right. I folk from Southeastern Oklahoma. So for vacations, from LA to Oklahoma, I was going fishing and wolf hunting, horseback riding. So I knew I knew early on that someday I wanted a more rural lifestyle. So the opportunity came. My children had moved here, 
So I followed them. Seven months after they had moved to the Nashville area, I bought a place. And, and you know, I, and it's still kind of true, but it's it's the prices of the real estate are going up now. But you can get a hell of a house compared to L.A. You know, when, yeah. you know, I tell my friends, like, you, you, you drive out into the valley and you're like, that's a million dollar house. They're like, no way. It's like, go on Zillow. I mean, it's like, you know, L.A. has become so pervasively unaffordable that a lot of the, you know, musicians are like, I'm going to go to Nashville. Yeah. And, and, you yeah. know, you find... You know, you, you find that all your friends are there, too. You know, it's like, you know, I've lost probably 15 friends in the last 10 years. People moving. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, it's very cool. Yeah, I like it. So, you know, like everybody, we're all kind of, um, you know, we're all kind of just sitting at our houses. Um, what have you been doing during the, the, the pandemic to a stay safe, obviously, no, you don't want to go out and hang. Um, but, but, but B, you know, just to keep creative, keep the chops up and, you know, are you playing? Sure. Uh, I haven't done a lot of playing. Um, I have a unique lifestyle in that four generations of Carlton family, we all live together in my home. Wow. I know. It just wasn't planned, but that's the way the last 10 years have worked out. So my mom moved in with me three years ago. She turned 98 this God Christmas. Bless her. God I know. Bless her. Yeah, from L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's been great. And my daughter and her family with three kids, we all got together and decided to live here at my lake house. So when you say, what have I been doing? I have yeah. family to hang out with. Uh, we're fortunate. We live right here on a lake, so we can go fishing. Uh, it's been okay. As far as music, there's just been a couple of projects that I've overdubbed on, a couple of videos I've done for Japan, right. for promotion for them. Uh, other than that, uh, like you, you, no live gigs. So I've been kind of taking it easy, tell you the truth. Yeah, you know, at first it was a real shock to my system being home and with no gigs. And then I kind of liked it. I kind of was like, yeah, that's all right. You know, this is, you know, I'm a little bored, but yeah. Nice. You said something, um, one of my favorite moments. I was, uh, you know, watching a bunch of your videos today, and you played Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival about 10 or 12 years ago. Yes. And, and um, you came out and you had this great line. Hi, my name is Larry Carlton, and you might remember my guitar, and it goes something like this. And you go right into Josie from Steely Dan. And I, I, it was such a, you know, something you sing in front of a crowd and, you know, just, and, and I was thinking about it going, you know, if that doesn't just personify Larry Carlton to me as a guitarist and a musician, because you, I've heard hundreds of records that you've played on and didn't know it. You know what I mean? Because you were you were such a first call session guy and you were so, you know, diverse in your style and you, you know, obviously everybody knows the kid Charlemagne and the Steely Dan stuff and the stuff you're really famous for, but it's like, it's like Bobby Bland. You played on dreamer. Ain't no love in the heart of the city. That's you. Right. You know, do you ever like listen to the radio, you know, just driving in your car and you, and you go, that's a pretty good guitar part. And then you realize that you, you played it. Well, not exactly like that, but uh, sometimes I'll be shopping grocery shorts at the grocery store, or maybe with my daughter, Katie, and something will come over the speakers. Cause it's been a long time now since the 70s and 80s, you know. Right. 
And every once in a while, one will come on that neither one of us have thought about in a long time. And I'll go, something, a session I did that all of a sudden is being played. Who got you in the door? Because a lot, you know, a lot of great session players, um, you know, like that, that have had great careers yourself, Dean Parks, Luke Thur, you know, the Rittenauer. Um, there was always a host. There was always somebody like a producer or somebody who got you. Who, who was who was like your mentor and like, come here, kid, come play on this thing for me. Yeah, it uh, the one that comes to mind today. There were a couple of guys that kind of put my work, uh, my name out. Uh, but Louis Shelton told a story, and he was the number one pop guitar player in L.A. in the 60s and 70s. Um, when I was about 20 years old, I was playing an after-hours club. And by chance, these two guys came in. It was Louis Shelton and Dash Crofts. Right. And they, and they heard me play, and Louis remembered me from that night. And so he, was, he told his story. Uh, he was on a David Cassidy and the Partridge family session. Right. With Tom, Tommy Tedesco and Howard Roberts, something like that. Yeah. And after uh, one of the sessions, David kind of pulled Louie aside and said, everybody's great, but do you know any guys that play a little more like you, like a little more contemporary? And Louie said, I remember this guy. And Louie called me and said, wow. could, you, could you do some Partridge family sessions? And that was one incident where somebody recommended me because they had heard me play a year or two before. Yeah. You know, the the thing about like all those television bands, you know, like the Monkees, Partridge yeah. Family, you know, those those shows in the 60s, they were A-level musicians and great songs. You know, the Monkees had great songs. The Partridge Family had great songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you know it was like it was that the 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 wrecking crew. Did you find any resistance? You know, because there's those stories about Howard Roberts. He was a little, you know, and and some of the you know the Barney Kessels of the world that were kind of being phased out by the late '60s, early '70s, mm-hmm. and then the new, you know, the the new younger, you know, more contemporary players were were stepping in for the same gigs that they were just getting three times a day. Do you ever find? Yeah. Did, was there any resistance? As a Overall, general rule, no. Right. A few times you could feel a vibe from much, much older guitar players. If we ended up on some kind of a Streisand date or an Andy Williams date that was legit, right. you could feel that, like, why is the kid here? You know, I was 22 right. when I started sessions. So, uh, but nothing, nothing major. Uh, a lot of respect. And also becoming friends with those guys over the years. Then we got to share our perception of each other from the beginning. Right. It was great. But, you know, nothing but nice things to say about, yeah, you were the kid coming in, but we could tell you could play. That kind of embracing. Right. Yeah. There's always, you always, you always, you always get the, 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 they look over the glasses at you at first and then, you know, it's like that, and that's your moment to prove yourself. You're like, Oh my God. You know, it's like, you know, I, I got to play today. You know, what was your studio kit back then? Like, cause you, there's that legendary tweed deluxe that's been on everything that you, you know, I think you still have it. I do. I still have the tweed deluxe, but honestly, I only used that amp on the Steely Dan solos. Right. Prior to that, 
the typical studio setup was a Princeton reverb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody started having it modified to make them cleaner, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, Princeton reverb and a guitar of choice was pretty much the session guitar setup in the early 70s. Yeah, because you could, with a Princeton, you can basically do anything. You know, if you want clean, reverb, it's bright, it's nice. You know, and the, the, the thing, you know, when I listen to the solos on the Steely Dan stuff, and, and I obviously am a geek and a nerd, and, and I, I have this little jazz funk band, and I said, you know, we, we did the first record, and I said, I got to do, do the Larry. So <laughs> it's the front pickup. And it's the Tweed Deluxe, and it's just you turn it up to about six or seven, and you know, and then roll the volume back, and, and it and it does that. Obviously, I'm not Larry Carlton, but but it, it got the it got the vibe that, that I was looking for. Do you remember how much you paid for that amp? This is this would be a good. And I don't even remember why I bought it or where I bought it, and it right. sat in my home for many years, and I don't even remember Joe why I took it to the Steely Dan overdubs. It's just right. a fluke, you know. It's like now I'm going to take this one too. How many takes would they make you do? Because there's those legendary stories about like, like it takes six weeks to find a chair that you're comfortable with in those <laughs> in those sessions, you know. Um, I wouldn't remember this except Donald or Walter mm-hmm. over the years have told me, but. Uh, uh, Walter told me that when we were, the night we were doing uh, Kit Charlemagne, when I got to the studio, he suggested, now this this is Walter telling me, I didn't remember right. it. Um, uh, he suggested maybe I play a Strat. Gotcha. So I pulled out a Strat, and we plugged in, got a little sound, and played some stuff. And he said after a couple of run-throughs, he said, nah, go back to your guitar. Right. And then they reminded me that Kit Charlemagne was two takes. Wow. Yeah, put together. Right. Through here. No, pick it up. Let's finish it. Right. Um, I've reflected, obviously, over the years about those solos, Kit Charlemagne, Don't Take Me Alive. Um, The planets aligned, man. Mm -hmm. Right player on the right song on the right night. Right. And then you can't plan those things. You know, it just worked. And I'm humbled and thankful that I was there to do it. Well, you know, that, that's that's what makes classic music is, is you know, there are so many great guitar solos on average songs. Is if you get a great song, great singer, great yeah. band, and then you nail it and the, all all the pieces come together. And it's, it, it, it's, it's timeless, you know, and, you know, that particular solo for me was my entry into to to like jazz and yeah. and because i was a blues player but but had i wanted to get into the adult chord business you know where there was multiple changes and i and i was like oh i can't you know i can't just play f sharp over this pentatonic you you, you got to know the changes you know yeah. and it's and you know were you were you really were you, were you good at sight reading when you, when you when you were doing those those gigs and those sessions more than adequate okay. i wasn't a great great sight reader like a tommy tedesco you know but right. um i always got by mm-hmm. i remember doing some film calls and there would be three guitars me tedesco and dennis budimir 
And I would always take chair three because that would be the easiest reading. There's right. no ego in me and that. And I'd go through the music. Oh, shit, there's a banjo part. It's just scattered with eighth notes, you know? Right. So when it became time for the 10-minute break, every hour the union says the band gets a 10-minute break, I would sit and skull, make sure I could nail the part. Then the right. guy would come back in, and they'd had coffee and a cigarette. So I always made it. But I wasn't right. a great sight reader, just good enough to always get the gig done appropriately. You know, uh, Tommy Tedesco had a, had a great line. He, like he he had all these weird instruments. I, I remember watching this interview he did it. I think it was GIT. He's like, yeah. yeah, I had a bazooki, I had a giras, I had a sitar, and he goes, I just tune him like a guitar. And then if the producer asked me to, you know, he would, you know, what was he like? Because you know. He was from upstate New York. He was from Buffalo. And just, you yeah. know, I never met him, but he had that upstate New York Italian character that it just was endearing to me. And then just, you know, and then to be that good. Yeah. And and to, you know, we're st I mean, people still talk about like his his contributions and to just pop popular music. What was he like to like work with? Was he as advertised? Oh, he was. He was fun because he was. Italian, right, fun, right, and so accomplished that every session he was just relaxed, and he loved to tease everybody. So right. uh, he would always, if I was on a date with Tommy and it was a reading date, of course, he'd take chair one, I like whatever, and maybe the producer would say, "Okay, guys, in a minute, well, let's do a take," and Tommy would say. I bet you a hundred bucks you can't make it all the way through without making a mistake. Because I was the kid. <laughs> right, right. He enjoyed putting that kind of pressure in a fun way. Or, or let's switch parts and see who makes a mistake. That kind of fun. So right. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was a joy. And one other uh, incident that comes to mind. After I was established a couple of years in, uh, Tommy had a dinner at his house. Mm -hmm. So he invited me and my wife, Joe Pass, John Paisano, who else? Dennis might have been there. Anyway, there were four for sure guitar players, plus Tommy. And then he had an Italian dinner for everyone. Right. Right. I was probably 23 years old. My heroes are all sitting here, and I happen to get to be one of the guys. Right, right, right. right. So it's an Italian dinner. So it's going to be at least five courses. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> they brought out the pasta. I thought that was dinner. Right. And they watched me. Everybody ate their pasta, but I probably had seconds. You know what I mean? I didn't know. Right. right. And then Tom and I got to, because then they started bringing out the second course and the third course. And I thought the spaghetti was dinner. So Tommy teased me about that afterwards. You know, next session was like, hey, how'd you enjoy that first course? <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. You got to watch it because the pasta comes out first, then the meat, and then there's like it, it. It keeps going. Well, you know, we've we've all been in Italy. You know, before before the 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 promoter wants to take you out for dinner, and you're like, you know, hey, we we going at like nine. You know, we're we're still at the restaurant at seven thirty. You know, things has no intentions of wrapping up in the next hour. You know, yeah. it's just it's just how they roll. You know, what was it? What makes a good producer? 
because I, I always have this conversation with a lot of people and, you know, I always, in my limited experience in sessions or whatever I've done on the side, I always say indecision is the worst kind of decisions that a producer can make. Like if they just don't know what they want and you're like, well, you know, we're fishing without a lure here. It's like, you know, are we going for bass? Are we going for trout? You know, and then you try to bring the the right kit to cover all the bases. But, you know, if, if you're just, oh, just play something, you're like, I don't know. You tell me, give me, nudge me in the right direction. What, what's your, What's your definition of a great producer and what they do? Well, I, I would start with saying their relationship with the artist and what they have in mind for the artist to accomplish. Do they want to make something very artistic? Do they want to make something very successful? Right. I think it starts there, but then I can reflect on being in the studio when they've already chosen the song. They've already chosen the arranger. Right. So the producer... I heard Quincy, I'll paraphrase, but I heard Quincy Jones a long time ago say that producing a record is like producing a movie. Casting, casting, casting. Right. Call the right cats that you know fit a certain scene. Right. And direct them, but allow them to bring to that scene their personality. And it works a lot of the time. You handpick the guys you think would be right for this moment. Right. So that's one I think a lot of producers could do now for sure. Think very carefully about who you're going to call because you know what they can contribute. I have uh, I have I have tempo fear. I've produced a couple records in my life. I have yeah. tempo itis, right? Because the one thing you can't fix is the tempo. Is it grooving? Is it too fast or is it too slow? And mm. I do notice on some of the older recordings that I try to jam along they're in between keys, meaning they've sped up the tape machine a little bit or brought it back a little bit to where, you know. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always notice about your playing is, is even if it's a simple part, I know it's Larry Carlton. How do you, how do you, you know, I mean, even when you're working with Streisand or the Partridge family or Bobby Bland or Steely, you know, are you cognizant of like, you know, I want to, you know, leave my stamp on this, on, you know, on this tune, or do you, or do you, you just go, I'm just going to give you what you need and then pack up my stuff and go. There's not that much thought that went into it. I was there to give them the guitar part. And that's just the way I I play it. It was never about me trying to make a statement. So somebody will notice that's me. It's just the way I play the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like going back to "Ain't No Love in the Heart," see, your part is almost as loud as the lead vocal. You know, <laughs> your I rhythm. That, I, was, I think that's me and Dean. It's you and Dean. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's you and Dean part. Part, and I'm playing the rhythm part. I think. Right, you're playing like the you're you're playing the slidey chords, and yeah, you, yeah. you listen to the mix. You're like, my God, whoever mixed that record loved that part because there's Bobby's vocal. Your <laughs> rhythm guitar is just tucked right underneath. And then yeah. the rest of the, you know, Dean's kind of buried and pan to one side. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's to me, you know, it to me glues the whole song together, you know, because it, it creates the groove. Um, yeah. cool. spe- speaking of the blues, I have to ask you about the trip to Kinshasa 
Zaire 74 with the Crusaders, or the, originally called the Jazz Crusaders, but they were Crusaders at that point. And you backed up B.B. King on one of, I think, the definitive version of The Thrill is Gone. So much so, I covered your version for my tribute show to B.B. King because I love it so much. I mean, just for the viewers, set the, set the scene. I mean, you, you're, you're, you've got this gig. You fly to Central Africa. Okay, Larry Carlton exits the plane. What's the scene like for, for, for <laughs> those living vicariously? Yeah. Um, there were two places to stay. One right in the heart of the of the city, at the major hotels, the five star hotels and all that, right. and then there was an out of town, five miles out, another place where, and that's where the Crusaders and I and many other artists stayed. Um, and my suitcase didn't show up, so I had no <laughs> clothes for five days. So nice. I was borrowing T-shirts from Sticks Hooper, the drummer from the Crusaders, right. and just making it work so anyway that was one incident right um but musically uh we were thrilled to be there it was a lot of downtime it wasn't very well organized and it was all about the fight obviously foreman ali right um, and yeah just one afternoon uh, somehow somebody said bb needs a rhythm guitar player he'd like you to do it i said sure because the Crusaders, I don't know if we had already performed, probably. Right. Probably. So it was just one of those casual things that I was there, they needed a rhythm guitar player, and they asked me to do it. It was a thrill for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I watched that film of B.B., you know, and he's, I mean, he's, in 74, he was, he could do no wrong. He was on fire. He was a pop star at that point. I mean, yep. the Bill Simzik yep. Uh, produced uh, Thrill is Gone was a huge hit. He was he was up there with James Brown. He was one of the premier black pop stars at the time. Right. And he knew it, you know, because he's doing the shtick. He had the, he had the fall, the, the, it's the sweet 16 where he'd fall down on one knee and stuff like that. And it, it took me a couple of like passes to watch, watching this concert. And I go, my God, I know that's Larry Carlton there, you know? And did you have to, did you rehearse with him or was it just, here's the music? We'll see on the other side. Probably a run through in the afternoon before gotcha. the show. Yeah. Right. Um, now, another thing I do remember enjoying so much about BB, that performance, he was playing through an Ampeg VT22. And his tone, I loved. I remember that. I never forgot that. I came home and thought, I'm on one of those amps. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed him having a little more grease on it, you know? Yeah, you know, BB's tone, I, when I was a kid and I first met him, he liked my twin because it, oh, it was it was healthy and it would overdrive. So he'd plug it in, you know, because the band never carried backline. It was our, yeah. we were the opening act. We used our drums, everything. He loved my twin. And I always used to love those gigs because he, he would he would embrace the feedback, you know, because some nights it would just be the twin was lame or whatever. And it just was like plunk, 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 plunk. And still him. But it wasn't the, you know. Speaking of amps, you're you're known as a as a Dumble guy, and you, you you're using Bluto tones now, which are great amps as well. Um, how did you meet Howard? 
or Alexander, whatever he wants to be called. But um, you know, yeah. Did, did you did you did you hear about the amps, or did you did he find you? Going, hey, check this out. Yeah, prior to meeting Alexander Dumple, um, I was playing boogies live. Right. Uh, I had been on tour with the Crusaders around 74, 70, late 73. And we did a show in San Diego. And at Soundcheck, a local music store guy came to Soundcheck and said, hey, I got this new amp. You might want to try it. And it was one of the first boogies. Right. So I put it on the spot. Paid 750 bucks for it and bought yeah. it and used it for a long time. Jumping ahead, I heard about Dumble, but I'd also heard about his reputation of not being so reliable. Right. And, and that his amps could only be worked on by him. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to get in that, that boat. Right. So time went by. And I remember getting a call one evening from someone I'm sorry I don't remember and they said uh, Dumble's over at some place in the valley right. uh, and they sure would like it if you'd come over and check out one of his amps Right. my cousin Steve who was my assistant engineer at the time we went there Right. and there was this guitar player playing through one of Dumble's amps that I had never heard of or met uh, one of your heroes, as a matter of fact, right. was Eric. Right, right, Eric Johnson, right, yeah. It was Eric. Yeah. So we we met that night and uh, shared some experiences and played through a dumble. And I loved it. I really did. Thought, this is great. But I was honest with Alexander Dumble. Afterward, I said, man, here's what I've heard. I can't get in that boat, but I would love to play your amp, but I just can't. He said, if you buy the amp and love it, I guarantee you, mm -hmm. I will always take care of you. And he did. I could be in Japan and have the amp go down and ship it back, and he'd have it back in five days. Wow. He took great care of me at that time. Right. So it worked out, and I enjoyed playing that amp for a long time. The amp went down one evening getting to Bluto Tone. Right. At Soundcheck in uh, Colorado, and just by chance, uh, he was there, the Bluto Tone guy. Brandon, yeah. Brandon, he said, I can fix that for you, and I can duplicate it if you ever want it. Right. And he fixed it backstage before the show. Right. So that was the Bluto Tone connection, and it got me out of the Dumble situation, which my amps were getting tired. Yeah. Yeah, the Dumbles were getting tired. So Bluto Tone relationship started. You know, it's it's that that's the thing because you know you 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 kind of like you know play a certain type of amp and you know I, I have three Dumbles and I have a, one guy Brandon sometimes works on them. I have one guy gets yeah. under the gets under the goop and you know and I, this is all geek talk, ladies and gentlemen. Don't never 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 talk about this stuff on a first date. You'll never get a second one. Anyway, but but the thing is. I find if I plug into your rig, unfortunately, I sound like Joe Bonamassa. And if you plug into my rig, you sound like the legendary Larry Carlton. And one of the things a good lesson to have is, as a guitarist is like, this is the sound. What you plug into is kind of is the toolkit that helps you get there. You know, and I, I would assume as soon as you plugged into the blue, you're like, yeah, I sound like Larry Carlton. You know, yeah, it sounds like home, feels like home. home. 
Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned it's the player, the amp, uh, two of our heroes, Luke and Robin. Right. Um, I have done that on stage with them, either at soundcheck or during a show. We switched guitars, we switched right. rigs. Right. I took my guitar to Robin's rig. He mm -hmm. took his to mine, and we played, and it sounded like shit. The tone was not there at all by our touch. And Luke, right. Luke and I did it one night on stage. Might have been at a master class. And we asked guys from the audience, who's been playing longer than six years or something? Yeah. Then you come up and play. What guitar do you want to play, mine or Luke's? We did that whole thing. Each guy that came up sounded, Luke's guy sounded like Luke, and Larry's guy sounded like Larry. Right. And they they got to play through our rig. Yeah. I I like to do that, too. Like you, you get a kid and be like, hey, hey, kid, you ever played 120 dB? Try this. Here's all right. four of them. And you know what it is? It's it's it, you do start to see how tactile the instrument is. And and, you know, all this there's been years and years and years and years of, of, of arguing about the magic pedal, the the $100,000 Dumble or whatever it is, whatever they cost now. And and it really sometimes distracts from the fact that you could literally, when I hear you play acoustically, just unplug. It's your touch. It's the way you make the guitar bloom. And 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 it's it doesn't have anything to do with the amp. It's just, it's, it's the technique and the years of, of, of trial and error, you know? Do you... Do you subscribe to the ten thousand hour theory? Do you know what that is? The you got to you got to be doing something for ten thousand hours before you before you get the expert badge. I've heard of that. Uh, never gave it much thought because, like you, I was so young when I started playing guitar. My ten thousand hours came right along the way early. You know, who put the guitar in your hand in the first place? Where there was a there was an old acoustic guitar with no name at my grandmother's house. Ah. And my mom could play five chords. Right. And so she could strum and play some chords. And they told me, my parents told me that at four years old, I was just fascinated by the guitar. And so they told me, when you're big enough to hold it, you could take lessons. Right. So at, at about six, six and a half, I could hold that big old acoustic guitar. Right. I started taking lessons and... That's all I've ever done is play the guitar. And when did you know you had it? Because there's a moment where, yeah, you play, you take lessons, and then then you're like, okay, I can do this on a on a higher, I can run in a higher plane, you know. And then and then obviously you you made the decision to move to Los Angeles and start start your career. Yeah, it was never a conscious decision because it all happened so naturally. Right. I, I knew I would speaking, be speaking with you today, and I was running over in my mind some things that might come up. When I was in ninth grade, junior high school, mm -hmm. I was working Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoon at a club playing pop music right. with guys that were 20 years old. Yeah. So I was already, you know, I'm 14 years old at that time, and I'm playing three nights a week gigging. Yeah. It was never a realization of, oh, I'm yeah. It was, I never, Joe, I thought about this, man. Motivation for musicians. Mm -hmm. Never in my mind as a kid and through my adulthood did I ever say, I want to be a star. Right. 
Never. I wanted Never. to be a guitar player. Right. And my dream was to be like Wes Montgomery, Joe Pass, Kenny Burrell, sit right. in speaking clubs and play jazz. Mm -hmm. That's not the way life turned out. No. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was become a studio musician. I had a few sessions in my mid-teens, demos, and it was with the Wrecking Crew, surf right. music. And I saw these guys all pale, <laughs> sitting there playing their gig. I thought, I never want to do that. Life ended right. up doing 500 sessions a year, or ever. So you wow. can't plan it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what was the what was the what was the session you turned down that you regretted? Do you have oh. one? Just didn't have time, or you were booked somewhere else. You know. Well, yeah, there were many sessions that uh, I was called for that I couldn't do, and they became hits. But I never regretted it because it was right. covered. You know the um, Johnny Rivers record, L.A. Reggae? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. right. Dean, Dean and I were booked for five nights to do that. But one of the nights, I had another session already on the books. And that's when they did Rockin' Pneumonia. And Dean played the great solo on that. It was perfect. Right. I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have been there. Yeah, it, it's all, it all happens for a reason. You know, it's like, it's, it's that folklore. What advice would you give? Because I know, I know there's, um, there's, there's a guitar player in Los Angeles. His name is Mason Stoops. Really good, plays a telly. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was over at my house one day, and I, I asked him, I you was know, just asking him, he's, I think he's 26 years old. And I said, man, what's, you know, what are your goals? You know, just, you know, what do you, what do you want? He's like, man, I want to, you know, I, I, my goal is to move to Los Angeles and be a session, you know, guitar player like a Tommy Tedesco or Larry Carlton or Luke Thurn, all that stuff. And he's doing, he's working, you know, he's working really. What advice would you give to a 25-year-old Larry Carlton just, just showing up in L.A., wanting to, wanting to, you know, make his mark on, on, on a session, you know, or, or the session scene? Sure, sure. Well, a couple of things come to mind as far as you never know what you're going to be called to do, but always service the song. It's right. not about you. That's obvious, but a lot of guys go in thinking, if I can show this producer how good I am, no, 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 how good did you perform for the song? And then getting along with the other musicians, another obvious one. And right. Luke and I have talked about this forever. Leave your ego at the door. Right. All you need is... Play right. chick, right. play it perfect. So those two things and the, the musical part, there's no way to always be prepared for what they're going to ask you to do. Yeah. So you just go in and do the best you can based on your history as a musician. And it will work sometimes and sometimes it won't. I've been replaced on records. I've had records come out that I knew I had overdubbed on. Mm -hmm. it comes on the radio and I'm thinking, ah, I play Oh, no, that's Louis. Right. <laughs> they dumped my part and brought Louis in. They liked it better. Uh, right. So none of us do everything perfectly all the time. Yeah, you can't, I mean, you can't, you can't, like, get hung up about that, you know? Because, like you said, you check the ego at the door, and it's like, hey, they, they paid me to be there. And, you know, I always tell people, like, you know, like, if, if they ask me to do something, like, listen, I'll, I'll do anything you guys want. Like, like the, you know? I, you want in time, you want in time, in tune percussion, I'll, I'll be that guy, you know, 
every other every two and four. And, you know, and to me, it's like, you know, I'm always, you know, cognizant of like if, 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 it, if it gets too far out of my comfort zone, I'm like, like, listen, I won't charge you for the session. You know, right. I may not be the right guy for this. If we're, you know, if we're, you know, there's just certain I, I'm a blues guitar player. And that's a real that's a real good thing for people to hear. It's like not, you know, for somebody so accomplished as yourself that that. It you know you you weren't for everything you know you know you, you could play everything but then there was you know producers going like no bring so and so and fine well, you know? not not feeling the guitar part man let's try and they move on it's not personal right. yeah in fact uh, just before we started you and I were just hanging out for a minute I told you I hadn't played the guitar for four months right starting in April um, well. There's a project going on that I'd been asked to overdub some solos on here at my studio. Right. And uh, I finally got around to doing three takes for the guy. But for the first time in my career, because I hadn't played much right. at all this year, when I sent it to him, I said, man, if for any reason you don't think you can't make this happen, Mm -hmm. I've been real scattered. My chops are not what I always like them to be. I hope it works, but if it doesn't, right. feel free, buddy, right. just to say it didn't work this time. Mm -hmm. and that's one of the first times, but it's because I haven't played much this year at all, and I want the project to be the best it can be. Exactly. Again, last but not least, I have to ask you, because as a vintage guitar nerd, there's if you listen to the internet, they will say, 335s pre from 1965 back to 58 with the wide neck those are the ones you want and then anything from like 1966 to the early 70s oh that they got the narrower neck and no you don't want those and i always my my reply I go you know what good enough for larry carlton good enough for me <laughs> and you your your guitar the the iconic it's like Cherry Sunburst 335 is, I believe, a 1969. Correct. And yeah. and you have moved the earth with that guitar. And is there? Do you actually do you prefer the skinnier, the the, the narrower nut? Um, you know, just in, sure. in general. I do because uh, I'm a chord guy. Right. And when I when I audition a guitar, if somebody says, "Here, check this out. Tell me what you think." There's a certain B flat 13th chord starting on the sixth fret. Mm -hmm. And if I can't make that chord on that guitar, then that neck's not appropriate for me. Right. Certain voicings that on the big, big neck guitars, I wouldn't be able to perform. So it was important to me to get that sound and be able to play voicings that I want to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I don't like big necks either because you just like, it's like you, you have a two by four that, yeah. that you know, and I don't, I don't hear the difference in the sound. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, you plug up, hey, it sounds, sounds, sounds like a three thirty five. How it sounds like a, sounds like a telly or whatever. Right. Well, one cool thing uh, before we end, mm -hmm. one cool thing I did want to bring up though, because we're talking about the three thirty five. Yeah. Um, I've been a Gibson guy for a lot of years, and you are. Yeah. Recently, I've started to endorse and have my own guitar line with Sire guitars. I read about that. I meant to ask you, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, at this stage of my life, mm -hmm. 
a lot of what I do is about giving back if I can. Right. And with Sire, you know, they have the Marcus Miller base and they have had it for, gosh, going on 10 years now. I mean, the credibility is really high. When they showed me the quality of the instruments they could make to my specs, mm-hmm. the price they could make it, I thought, this, this is cool. I want more guitar players that want to play a 335 style or a Les Paul style that don't have a lot of money right. to have a quality instrument. Yeah. So I'm just putting it out there. That's my motivation. It was nothing against Gibson at all. But if I can get more guys a quality instrument for the buck, right? I'm with them. So that's Ab- why I'm with fire. You could rule the world. Hound Dog Taylor ruled the world with a with a, a guitar you wouldn't pay fifty bucks for. You know, right. he just made it work. You know, and yeah. and tell the folks like it, uh, so. The, how many models are there? Is there is there, it's a, the, obviously one based on a, a ES three thirty five. Is there yeah. a Les Paul one? Yeah, there are three uh, uh, solid bodies. Mm-hmm. Similar, yeah, they're Les Paul and Strat style. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar to tone to those. Uh, there's my 335 style, which is an H7, and right. also an acoustic that we did that's very, very similar to my Valley Arts acoustic that I played for all those years. Right. Yeah, we have a five guitar line. Thanks for asking that. Uh, and again, quality instruments at a reasonable price for the guys. Exactly, you know, and we every year we do these Epiphone guitars, and they're seven ninety nine, and yep. you know, they're they're attainable, you know, and and they sound good. I use them live, you know, yeah. I use them live. Yeah. Side them, somebody buys it, you know, but yep. uh, it's it's the more people in the guitar business, the healthier the 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 scene is, you know. It's and it's and it's encouraging to see a lot of young people who are light years ahead of where I was. Like these are twenty-year-olds, and they're like playing at like master level. I know. I'm like, well, my job's about to be obsolete (laughs) in a couple of years. Just think about that's what set up when they saw you in your youth. You know, they go, "Watch out for that guy." So, Uh, thank you, Larry. You're a superstar. I'm honored to be your friend, and um, I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing so well. And uh, when all of this is over, we got to jam and play something. We got to we, we got to dust off the cobwebs and play. You know, I need it and I'd love it. Thank you. Abs- absolutely, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the iconic Larry Carlton. Thank you very much. This has been live from Nerdville, from New York City, New York. <laughs>